0: Welcome to the Public Health Power Hour podcast, a recording of live conversations with public health experts on the most important global health issues. I'm Steve Hamill, Vice President of Policy Advocacy and Communication at Vital Strategies. We're a global health organization and we're reimagining public health. At Vital Strategies, we believe that public health is everything that surrounds you that makes great health possible. That means clean air and water, access to medicine and quality care, healthy food and places to get exercise, and removing bias and discrimination in healthcare. Here on the Public Health Power Hour, we get together to look at how the world around us shapes our health and how we can shape the environment so that everyone everywhere has the potential for great health. And if you want to join our conversations live, please follow us on Twitter under the handle VitalStratts. Welcome to the Public Health Power Hour. This is Steve Hamill. I'm Vice President of Policy, Advocacy, and Communication at Vital Strategies, a global public health organization. And this Public Health Power Hour is a live discussion show about public health on Twitter spaces. We also recorded as a podcast, and we've had top-notch guests over the last year and covered the biggest topics like vaccine equity, maternal health corporate determinants of health, and and more. If you've missed an episode, find us on your favorite podcasting app like Apple or Spotify. You can just search for Public Health Power Hour. And at at Vital Strategies, we're working to reimagine public health. That means everything that surrounds you, the built and natural environment, policies, culture, all of which make good health possible. And we believe that public health can be better bolder and stronger. And this year we're dedicating these power hour discussions with experts and advocates to think about how, how can we do that? We're prompting them to help us paint a picture of this future by asking what if. And in today's discussion, we're going to be looking into the topic of tobacco control and equity with some fantastic experts. I'm so happy to have uh, in the room, uh, the virtual room with me. And our discussions are guided by, by you, our listeners, and you can forward your feedback, like ideas for new shows or questions, feedback um, through email, um, powerhour at or feel free to tweet us and tag the handle at vitalstrat and drop us a line. I'm excited to introduce to you our panelists. Uh, Before we go to the main discussion, we like to warm up by asking each panelist to share a new story that caught their eye recently. Uh, Our first panelist is Rachel Cotonio, the McCabe Center's Regional Manager for Africa, based in Nairobi, Kenya. She's an expert on policy and law and an advocate who has worked across a dozen African countries, including training more than 150 lawyers and policymakers. She's a veteran of our discussion show, who is renowned for her work in tobacco control policy in Africa and around the world, for which she was recently honored with a 2020 World No Tobacco Day Award. Rachel, what article would you like to share with us this week?
1: So I referred to an article um, on the site of Radio Canada, which mirrors a series of other articles in the Western media. So in the last um, two weeks, there's been an outbreak of monkeypox. And um, the photos accompanying all of these articles are showing photos of black people. Yet the outbreak is in the West among white people. And so today we are going to be talking about neocolonialism. And so profiling monkeypox as if it's an African illness um, and so stigmatizing um, black people, yet the outbreak is spreading in the West, for me, I find is is, is atrocious. And so African journalists um, hit back and in African papers, they have now published the same pictures because if a doctor is to identify the symptoms, so they have published the same pictures with the lesions of, of the monkeypox on white people. And so going back even to um, how the coronavirus was called the China virus, so it stigmatized Chinese people as if it was the fault of the Chinese. Um, and even when, for example, Botswana, um, and South Africa reported um, the, the, a new variant, and uh, then they were stigmatized. And so just challenging how we portray illness and who we stigmatize by what we do. And so even checking and seeing some articles saying that um, the gay community fears that it's going to be said that it's spreading among them. And so just stigmatizing people instead of dealing with a disease. So that got my gut up.
0: Yeah, thank you for bringing that into this discussion into the room. I was going to pick monkeypox too. I I didn't, but also I was noticing in some of the articles they call it a neglected tropical disease, and that the answer is neglected by whom? You know, by the by the global community that where there's vaccines, you know, there's there's a way to deal with monkeypox, and yet it's it's portrayed as at least here in the U.S., like oh, at least Americans aren't going to get it. We have the the remedies. It's it's a terrible terrible double-edged sword there. Um, Andrew Waugh is our next panelist. He identifies as Ngate Hain, a Maori tribe from the northern part of Aotearoa, New Zealand. He's a senior lecturer and research fellow based at the Arupamare Maori Health Research Unit in the Department of Public Health at the University of Otago. He's co-director of Aspire 2025, a research collective working towards a smoke-free Oteroa, New Zealand, Andrew Anaru specializes in tobacco control policy research, health promotion, evaluation, and interventional design and indigenous health. He also teaches in Maori and public health. Andrew, before you present your article, can I ask you to share for listeners who may not know, Aotearoa is the current Maori name for New Zealand, and that predates the colonial era. Is that correct?
2: Uh Kia ora, Steve. Yes, it's um it, it's one of the original names for Aote- uh, for New Zealand. It refers to um when Māori first traveled here to land at the long white cloud. That's what they saw as like it as it came up over the horizon.
0: Great. Um and do
2: you want to share
0: the article that, that you've uh chosen for today?
2: Um, thanks, Steve. So the article um I'm sharing today is, is entitled uh Street Name uh renamed after uh Worship Waka. So uh, Porirua is the city that I live in in the Lower North Island of New Zealand. And it's about really about place names and neo-colonialism as well. So, you know, as as we know, place names are really important aspects of our culture and identity. And they link us to histories and and how we might relate to places, lands, and certain events. So this particular one is uh, about a naming of a street in, in as I said in Potiru, in a in a a, div- a suburb that was developed in the late sixties. And in that suburb below the streets were um named after um, British or European nautical terms, and one of these terms was Kaleopi uh, Crescent, which was actually a British warship um, with a bit of an infamous uh, history among Māori. So some of the context is the local tribe here uh, is called Ngāti Toa and they opposed the appropriation of the lands in the 19, century, 19th century, Sorry including um, engaging in some skirmishes with the Crown. And one of their notable uh, leaders was uh, a person called Te Raupraha. And if you've ever seen uh, our national rugby team play, um, play rugby in, in the haka, um, this haka is known as Kamake, and he was the person who uh, authored that ha- uh, haka. But Te Raupraha was abducted by the Crown and held without trial on this British warship Calliope. So having a street name named after that in, in, a, in, in, our, in our city is, uh, has been quite offensive. So has been uh, the name's been recently changed to uh, it's called Matahorua Crescent, and this is the name of the ocean-traveling vessel, vessel that brought our great tra- um, Polynesian navigator, Cook, uh, to Aotearoa New Zealand. So the name was um, gifted by Ngāti Toa to recognise the diversity of people who now live in the city. So for me, this is, you know, it's disappointing in a sense that we're still um, having these debates, you know, well, in, you know, in, well into the um, 2020s reflects ongoing coloniality. There was some resistance to it. And I think to me, it sort of reflected a lack of history and perhaps a lack of empathy on the experiences of those most impacted. But on the flip side, it's heartening to see our histories are being recognised more. And particularly for Ngāti uh, Ngati Toa, the local tribe, recognising the diversity and sort of embracing our, our current, you know, our society and our present day. So that's the story that I've got for today.
0: Thanks. And I love hearing this, these local, like very local stories that definitely would not have been on my radar. And I'm interested to dig in later about how, you know, wider reckoning on equity and, um, you know, colonialism and injustice played into, plays into tobacco control or played into tobacco control there. Um, I'm going to share an article too. I'm not going to cite a specific article, but I do want to pick up on the horrific shooting that happened in the United States this week. Um, in Texas, a gunman walked into an elementary school and killed more than 20 people, including 18 elementary school children. And, the uh, you know, for me, the sort of additional horror to the story is that it's so familiar in the United States, which seems awash, you know, in mass shootings like this. And just weeks ago, in my home state of New York, a grocery store in a prominently, predominantly Black neighborhood experienced an attack. Um, you know, before that, in Los Angeles, and you know, my conception or my perspective is that you know most Americans are angry, they're disgusted, but also there's this sort of helpless sense of deja vu. We say the same sort of useless arguments and and come to expect nothing will be done. And for me, you know, as a as a parent and a public health person, it's it's so hard to accept that we know that there are sensible solutions that will protect us like background checks and ones that 80 or 90% of Americans support but don't get passed. And um, you know, these are things that have been proven to work including places like Australia and your home country, Andrew. So, it's it's I bring it into the room today because it's a terrible reminder that public health is always about power. It's always about politics and social change is always about power and about who benefits from the status quo and about who has the power to make changes or to stop changes. And in this country, in this case, we have you know, corporate and political interests that have the power to stop any meaningful change on um, gun control. And I, I hope if you're listening today, or, or listening to the podcast, that um, you take an extra moment if you're in the United States to do more than tweet, more than talk about it, but actually get behind one of the groups that is that is pushing for change. So, yeah, power and politics um, towards social change. It's um, some, one of the—I think it's going to be one of the themes we'll touch on today as well. And I'm going to move on to our main topic now. Um, it's great to see some of our longtime um, colleagues, allies, and listeners in the crowd— uh, Lake Health and Wellness. I see you're a longtime listener. It's great great to, to have you back. Um, and I'm really happy to have our two guests here because they had such different perspectives on this really incredibly um, complex topic. Andrew's work that you heard of, you know, he works with the Mari who have been historically marginalized in Aotearoa New Zealand. But New, Z- New Zealand itself has tobacco use rates that have been dropping for decades. And one of the world's strongest tobacco control program. So, that's an interesting perspective. You know, Rachel's working in East Africa with a number of countries, you know, where smoking rates also are low, relatively speaking, to globally, but potentially going in the wrong direction. um, And protections are potentially among some of the worst in the world in terms of the region, as the industry sort of puts the target on Africa's back as its next big growth market. And for today's Topic, I'd like us to move through three topics broadly, sort of the historical and modern drivers of inequity, and then what are some of the solutions we've seen, and then how can we as a movement, as people work with greater equity? Um, And before I ask, um, I'd like to share our working definition of equity that Rachel Andrew and I um, identified before this discussion. Um, In this discussion, when we say equity, we are referring to fairness and justice, and distinguishing it from equality. So whereas equality means providing the same to all, equity means recognizing that we don't all start from the same place, that we have to acknowledge and make adjustments to imbalances. And that's that's an ongoing process that requires us to identify and overcome intentional and unintentional barriers that arrive from systematic bias and structures. Rachel and Andrew, does that definition still work for both of you? Would you like to add on to it, or is that sufficient? It's sufficient.
2: Um, Yeah, sounds good to me.
0: Okay, great. Um, So I'll just kick off by saying that the inspiration behind this topic um, was that Vital Strategies and the Tobacconomics team at the University of Illinois at Chicago launched the seventh edition of the Tobacco Atlas this week. Um, For 20 years, the Atlas has been a leading tobacco control publication, and it takes the best... Most recent data on the global tobacco epidemic and, and renders it into very easy to understand news format. You can find it at tobaccoatlas.org. And overall, this edition sounded a positive note. Um, you know, for the first time in 20 years um, of publication, smoking prevalence is unequivocally dropping down to below 20%. But underneath that good news are some really troubling trends that we wanted to unearth today. One is that Africa had the weakest progress in smoking prevalence reduction and among some of the worst protective measures, particularly when looking at taxation. Also, this edition, we teamed up with the African-American Tobacco Control Leadership Council to publish a new chapter on race and equity and looking at um, Black American smokers and menthol cigarettes as a case study exposed that huge disparities are being driven within marginalized populations, even in countries where progress is happening nationally. And so between these two trends, troubling trends, we have huge implications for health equity. And you know, unless we take action, it's countries and people that are less protected and less supported by global and national systems who are gonna bear the brunt of the next stage of the global tobacco crisis. And Andrew and Rachel, I'm sure these findings resonate with both of you. You're living this data day to day and I'd like to hear, you know, what that looks for you, like looks like for you. Maybe maybe Andrew, could you share a bit about uh, Aotearoa's New Zealand experience? What what does inequity look like there and what are the drivers and that that show up in the lives of the Maori today?
2: Um, thanks Dave. So um, just, just a bit about our history, I guess, But before I start, is for, as an Indigenous person, um, I, I really want to recognise the um, um, the Indigenous peoples of uh, of the Americas and their traditional use of tobacco. So today we'll be talking about commercial tobacco. Um, and just thinking about uh, a Maori history of use of tobacco, traditionally we had no psycho- psychoactive substances, but despite this post-European contact, it quickly became... Was taken up and became an article of trade. Um, today, our smoking prevalence is around 20, 20, 22% daily smoking, with higher rates amongst uh, our, our Māori women. Um, over time, the rates have uh, been decreasing, as you mentioned, but they still almost triple the rate of uh, European and non-New Zealanders. And so, this is think you know, these higher rates reflected in things like um, inequal rates of smoking-related cancers. We have some of the highest lung cancer rates amongst our Māori women in the world. Other respiratory illnesses, and ultimately higher mortality. So, the experience for us is really affecting, affecting our social structures. We have fewer elders who are a really important part of our society, as is, you know, most societies. Um, huge burden on our families in terms of you know, the impact that addiction has on our finances, um, and and the impact of illness on on our ability to participate in society as well. I think um, in terms of inequities. We know that they're often linked to socio economic determinants, things like, um, you know, income, housing, education, those sorts of things. Um, and this, this sort of, these determinants affect the sort of choices or resources that we might have access to us. But for Mardi and many other uh, Indigenous peoples, are things that sit behind accessing these socio economic determinants. So these are things like our experiences of colonisation and appropriation of our lands, um, exposure to racism and marginalisation, and so this affects. Access to these determinants; these are often called basic causes. So this shows up in things like in Aotearoa, New Zealand, Māori being um, more likely to smoke regardless of socio-economic position. So throughout the whole whole economic gradient, we have higher rates.
0: And I'm, I'm curious. In addition to you know, are there also tobacco-specific um, drivers of, of inequitable health income, uh, inequitable health outcomes?
2: Um, absolutely. We've recently been involved with modelling. Um, some of uh, some of the impacts of um, if New Zealand's smoke-free plan that was announced uh, last year, which is really an uh, end, paying uh, the end, uh, uh, smoke tobacco, and it's been calculated that the impacts of some of the leading measures, measures like taking the nicotine e-cigarettes, would um, reduce all-cause mortality um, the difference by twenty percent. So it has a huge impact on our mortality, um, and so. Uh, now, addressing this this inequity is, is really, really important. In some way, central to what a uh, central issue for our health.
0: Oh, that's devastating. Um, Rachel, I wanted to turn to you and get you know a, a different perspective, your perspective. I know um, you you have spoken on numerous occasions both about your work across a number of East African countries, also about you know poverty as a component of inequitable health outcomes. Uh, in health outcomes. Can you share um, some of those drivers spe- specific to the countries in your work in, that, that you work in in Africa?
1: Um, so, um, as you pointed out in the Tobacco Atlas, um, progress in Africa is the slowest among all of the regions, and we actually have 10 countries where prevalence is rising. And um, poverty is a a big issue because uh, across African countries, you find that the poor and those with a lower education, and very often those two go together, are 2.5 times more likely to smoke. So in Kenya, for example, smoking is more common at 23% among those without um, a primary school uh, education. And uh, we see the same figures also for those who have not finished secondary school. And we see the same pattern in Nigeria, in South Africa, so in other African countries. And so these poor people who are also the ones who have who tend to spend less on health insurance because being able to afford health insurance is, is a problem in Africa. So in Kenya, for example, I think only 30% of the population has got um, health insurance. And so they, have, they can spend less on health insurance, they can least afford to pay for the medical expenses related to tobacco-induced diseases, and they're also the ones who suffer the most when they lose a breadwinner. And because in most African countries, um, it's more men than women who smoke. So when you lose the father or the, the, the male partner in a, in a homestead, then uh, the women and the children suffer. At the same time, um, we find that those with a lower education level, and therefore the increased smoking, then to spend less on education, to spend less on food, and to spend less on healthcare. So it creates a vicious cycle where they are poor, therefore they smoke, and because they smoke, then they have got less to spend on these things, so they remain poor. And so tobacco use in Africa is both causing and are driven um, by poverty. Now, even when you look at um, the services, so for example, you're looking at um, tobacco control, there's been a big focus in Africa on prevention because all the talk is around, we need to prevent the epidemic before it happens, which is good. But given we still have some smokers on the continent, when you look at um, the cessation uh, programs in African countries, there are very few that have got national cessation guidelines. And uh, even those that have them or have what they call a national cessation program, it's not funded. So according to WHO, only 30% of the smokers in the world have access to appropriate tobacco cessation services. and this this um, 30%, uh, a lot of them are not in Africa. So when you look at the WHO investment case for cessation and you look at what are the most effective cessation mechanisms, so it runs the range from brief counseling at say a doctor or healthcare worker's office, all the way to medications like varenicline and bupropion. And so the most effective are these medications and um, the least effective is the brief counseling advice. Now in Kenya and in many other African countries, so Kenya, for example, I don't think we have any claim of at a government hospital and uh, propion is too expensive. So the intervention that would be given to these poor people who are smoking because they're the vast majority of our population is the brief counseling advice that has an efficacy rate of only 2% of all smokers who try to quit using it being successful. So what then is the option because if we are not going to fund cessation programs, how are the poor supposed to be assisted to quit? And so, even as we try to prevent those who are not smoking from starting, what do we do with that percentage of the population that smokes? And so, in Kenya, twenty three percent of of uh, of men smoke. What's supposed to happen to that population?
0: Mm-hmm. I you know I I also want I just want to underline something you said that. When I started working tobacco ritual, I found shocking, and I think people don't know, that, you know, tobacco use is a driver of food insecurity. It's a driver of poor educational outcomes in families. It's a driver of reduced economic uh, mobility for families. I think, you know, so many people have been trained to think about to you know cigarettes as something that you know people do or don't do they they just have a hard time imagining that there are families that where you know money's being spent on tobacco or you know or looking beyond the consequences of an individual person getting sick and that what happens to families when a caregiver or a you know breadwinner gets sick that that devastates that you know can devastate a whole community or a whole family it's it's really you know been part of tobacco control to convince people who care about food security and economic mobilization and and education to care about tobacco, to care about tobacco use because it's such a it's so interlinked to all these other, you know, inequities.
1: In fact, Steve, if I could give you some shocking statistics. Um, so Kenya is a tobacco-growing country. Um, in four counties out of a possible forty-seven. And so statistics from three of them, so one of them, a place called Teso, uh, particularly a sub-county called Angurai, 67% of the tobacco-growing households are food insecure purely because of the tobacco farming. And so because tobacco is um, monocropped and it pollutes the soil, you can't grow anything else alongside it. So the traditional and uh, Kenyan farmers are smallholder farmers. So on his small piece of land, the typical Kenyan farmer would grow some food for subsistence and then grow some other cash crop. So when they grow tobacco on all the farm, and they have to do that so that they can make some profits, then they don't plant maize and they don't plant all the other food crops. So you can imagine 66% of the households are food insecure. Um, In other parts of the country where tobacco is grown, um, the food insecurity ranges from 10 to 15% of the households
0: that's unbelievable and you know it's it's incredible that we have the science behind it and, and yet have failed to act i mean one of the things we saw in the tobacco atlas is that you know of course there are socioeconomic determinants to inequity around tobacco but you know we also saw how the tobacco industry weaponizes race and identity and inequity in multiple ways like um, one is through marketing and creating false cultural associations um, between tobacco use and you know and and cultural identity, or you know through claiming here in the U.S. that menthol bans are racist because they pre- because they're the preferred black um, preferred cigarettes of black smokers, even though it's the industry itself that has worked for decades to drive that behavior, um, or that you know that they're using corporate dollars within communities towards leaders to create. Um, you know, community leaders who will defend the industry. In fact, you know there was a recent article just the other day that showed the industry-linked industry-linked groups were paying black protesters to show up and protest menthol bans to take, you know, because they would they would limit access of of, of menthol cigarettes to black smokers. I was wondering, um, I'm, I'm, Andrew, I'm not familiar with the the. Uh, Aotearoa New Zealand context, but have you seen similar behavior there? You know, how does that, how does the hand of the industry show up in these, in these discussions?
2: Um, Over, over the past few decades, um, we've had a fairly um, stringent tobacco control program. So the industry has been fairly quiet, but over recent years, we've been seeing more and more um, of the industry showing, you know, their face. And historically, you would you would all seen examples of where Indigenous peoples have been exploited. So in the US, we, we continue to have Natural American Spirit, and um, I think PMI, um back in the mid two thousands marketed a brand called Māori Cigarettes in, in, in Israel. Um, but often today, we, it's more about the exploitation, particularly with you know uh, with the uh, rise of vaping, and so trying to get into our communities, promoting the products, trying to. Almost get indigenous peoples as champions, or unwittingly inviting indigenous peoples to conferences where it's found that it's been you know subsidised or paid for by by um, vaping, which is the, in this case is largely by the tobacco industry. So, I think um, for us, our experience has been around um, the industry trying to use us to, as a voice to get into government, um, also trying to sometimes reframe the discourse. So there are diverse um, views on things like vapes and and it's important for us to have those discussions but we're finding that the industry is getting in there and trying to sort of reframe our arguments or the way that we look at how you know whether vapes are a harmonization product or something like that so mainly um Currently, to do with vaping, but historically, there's been all sorts of uh, exploitation. Mm-hmm.
0: And Rachel, do you want to speak to the to the hand of industry and how you see it show up, especially sort of this the weaponization of of inequity or or poverty to, to, to advance their agenda?
1: Uh, so I'll just share two instances. So the first, going back um, to farmers, so the tobacco industry uses farmers a lot as front groups in Africa. So we've all heard of the International Tobacco Growers Association. And so there's a local chapter in Kenya called the Kenya Tobacco Growers Association. And so they pretend that they're agitating for the rights of farmers, but in reality um, are pushing industry arguments. And so in Kenya, particularly, we've seen them lobbying against um, tobacco taxes. And so um, when there was a work on the guidelines of Article 6 of the FCTC, and so this was before the COP, ITGA was mobilizing farmers all over. And so they got Kenyan farmers to demonstrate um, outside our parliament and sign a petition claiming that um, when the taxes are raised, it's going to affect farmers because the farmers need enough time um, to adapt to reduced demand for tobacco. So we should wait until they have adapted before we raise the taxes. Now, um, still around um, the tobacco tax arguments, some of the craziest stuff they come out and say, so for example, we've been trying to reform the Kenyan tobacco tax system. And the WHO guidelines are to have um, a uniform tax system, so not to have different rates of taxes on different products. And so in Kenya, we've got high-end products, so the ones with filters and so on. And then you've got the so-called low-end, which is the poor man's cigarette. And so they've always lobbied to have the poor man's cigarette having a lower tax rate. And so when the government made a move to standardize the rate so that it stopped people substituting from product to product, the industry mobilized smokers to come out and say. That the poor are entitled to have something to smoke. And so we should not um, tax the poor man's cigarette. Yet Aliot said that the poor are the ones who are having the worst impact um, of smoking-related diseases. And so when they talk about um, re- retrogressive taxes and say that your taxes then are affecting the poor, yet actually the poor are the most price sensitive and they're the ones who would benefit most from um, a tobacco tax increase. And so even when you look at these so-called farmers, because they also use the weaponized poverty, especially um, for those counties where tobacco is grown, and so no politician wants to hear that there are going to be job losses. And so they come and say that um, if we continue implementing smoke-free and tobacco advertising and promotion and sponsorship bans, or even graphic health warnings, this is going to cause um, tobacco farmers to lose jobs. And so they then come and say your tax revenue is going to go down. And yet these same farmers are so poor. And so when you look at even the kind of contracts that the industry uses, which are exploitative, and so contract farmers, particularly in Kenya, who are contracted by the tobacco industry, and uh, after they grow their crop, they have to deliver it to the tobacco industry. So it fixes the prices, it sells them the inputs, the fertilizers, the seeds at um, very high prices. And then after they deliver the crop, they deduct their their money from what the farmer is supposed to earn. So it creates this whole cycle of debt. And so from one growing season to another, the farmer is constantly paying back the tobacco industry. And so when you go to the tobacco growing areas in Kenya, you can immediately tell who's a tobacco farmer and who isn't just by looking at the quality of the house, how their children and wife look, likely not wearing shoes and looking dirty and looking scrawny. And this keeping them in poverty, and then trotting them out so that you can use them to lobby against um, tobacco taxes. And so that's weaponizing um, poverty and and just using it uh, even at the level of government to try and tell them that they're going to have reduced revenue um, by implementing tobacco taxes. Yet we all know the opposite is true.
0: Thank you for sharing that, um, you know, painting the picture of just how dire that is. Um, I want to pivot a bit from, you know, the costs of inequity and, and the drivers to talking a little bit about solutions, our topic today is, you know, what if tobacco control-centered equity, and I want to um, explore into that, um, and maybe thinking first about national-level tobacco control programs and maybe expand back out into the global scene. First, Andrew, before you would talk about uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand, you know, when we think about how to address this problem why do we need special considerations at all? You know, in other words, if we're looking at the package of tobacco control interventions and accept that they work across populations, let's say we raise taxes, we curb marketing, we execute media campaigns, you know, doesn't that have an even bigger impact on populations where smoking is higher? You know, what do you say to the kind of rising tides, raise all boats argument but like why do we need you know equity driven interventions within national programs
2: well i think um in the experience of uh, aotearoa new zealand we we we've been running a you know fairly decent um what we might call business as usual tobacco control programs so that's things like you mentioned tax um limits on advertising sales you know limiting sales to and all those sorts of things um but one of the things that really we started being debated in the mid 2000s for us was that if you look at it, the, the, the rates have been declining across all population groups, but these huge inequities have remained. So in the mid-2000s, um, smoking among Māori was, was around the 35% mark, which um, will pop, I think about 40% actually, and so it was more than double what was happening in the general population. And so if you look at it, it was telling us that actually these, these business-as-usual approaches you know, might be effective in the long run. However, they seem to be privileging, uh, in our experience, non-Māori. They... Non-Māori were seeming to do better are these sorts of interventions, and then looking at things like, uh, say, tobacco tax. Um, you know, it, it's known as to being a you know quite you know, an effective way to reduce prevalence. However, it's also seen as regressive for those populations that tend to have less you know resources, and that's for us for Māori. So these sorts of interventions were seen to be as um, highly impactful for Māori. Keeping in mind that New Zealand has uh, some of the highest um, tobacco taxes in, in the world, aligned with Australia. So um, those are sort of the things that were going on. And if we look at the sort of measures that were in place um, in that store in place in New Zealand, a lot of them were sort of individualised focused. So they targeted, they had things like targeted cessation support, which which is really important, I guess, but they, um, they they really rely a lot on having the resources and the support to sort of enact them. So seeing a quit quit, ad, quit um, campaign ad and you know, taking action to quit or trying to quit in a situation where there's a lot more going on in your life. Um, really doesn't take into account the differences in terms of these, you know, the social and economic determinants that we might have access to or the basic causes that I mentioned a bit earlier. So in a way, it's not surprising that they might have privileged uh, non-Māori. So um, this is where we need to start thinking about, you know, what are the sorts of interventions? And then also if we're thinking about things like cessation as... In reality, the only um, cessation services, they only only a small proportion of the population access access them, and of those, only a small proportion actually quit. So this is not to say that it's not important, but it's to say that they only have a limited amount of effectiveness in terms of addressing inequity. And when we, we did some studies here in Aotearoa New Zealand, and we found that actually, if we wanted all the smoke, current smokers to quit using a cessation service, the demand would absolutely outstrip the capacity of our cessation services. To meet that demand, we we've got okay cessations or good cessation services here. So, I think when we looked at it, what our tobacco control program was doing was addressing the symptoms, but not the causes. And this has sort of been a way we've been sort of leading the way to where we thinking about an endgame.
0: And and you know you 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 know smoke free Aotearoa twenty twenty five plan that's been implemented in in in, in New Zealand. You know in our look look at the Atlas we've, we it was a standout in terms of a foundational commitment to addressing inequity and and could be a model for other national programs so what does it look like you know what do these equity focused interventions look like
2: well I think that in the first instance what they look like is sort of taking the onus away from the the, the smoker sort of the individualized approaches have a huge risk of victim blaming so it sort of allows um, governments and so forth to say, well, it's the smoker's problem to quit and it doesn't look at the state's responsibility in terms of why is uh, commercial tobacco available? Why is it so accessible? Why is it so highly addictive? So we really want to start looking at what we might call structural causes and things like addressing the social economic determinants and the basic causes are really big issues. And in many respects, these are long play issues that we have to address in society, but often out the remit of tobacco control, but things like Changing the supply and nature of tobacco, um, things like taking the nicotine out, that we can access um, retail venues and things like that, is what a um, is a, a core cornerstone of our plan. So in our plan, we've got um, reducing uh, nicotine content by ninety five percent. So essentially, making them uh, not addictive reducing retail by 95 percent and waiting to make free generation this is all still to go through our, our parliament our government for passing into legislation so we, we're very hopeful that it goes through its current form but um it's still we'll, we'll, we'll see over the next couple of months how it goes that's
0: great i also love that at least from afar when I read about the program there's there's definitely a Nothing about us without us. Flavor with true Mari leadership embedded within the tobacco control program. You know, you know, sort of co-ownership of it seemed to me of the drafting of these plans and real consideration of you know ownership by the by the communities that are impacted um, by this plan. Um, Rachel, I was thinking we could turn back to to your world um, and think about you know are there programs within, um, you know, some of the countries you work in that that they have these kinds of equity dimensions. But you've also written about how equity or inequity shows up in the global space and your concerns about how its structures and oversights grow in equity. Would you like to share about, about that?
1: Um, so I'll talk a bit about just um, the global um, perspective. And so right now the World Health Assembly is going on and there's a big focus on NCDs. And um, I think globally, so particularly talking from an African perspective, so I'll start with some Kenyan statistics. Um, 27% of all deaths and 50% of all hospital admissions in Kenya are due to NCDs. Um, Lancet predicts that by 2030 in Africa, NCDs will overtake communicable maternal, neonatal, and nutritional diseases as the leading cause of mortality. Now, when you listen, when you compare with um, the amounts of funding that go into um, disease in Africa, and a lot of our health programs are donor-funded, only three percent of um, global um, development funding goes into non-communicable diseases. So, this is an article that was published in the journal Globalization and Health, and this was in 2019. Now, that means that 97 percent is then going to communicable disease. Now, typically when you hear about Africa, you're hearing about malaria and HIV and tuberculosis. I'm not saying those diseases are not there. I'm just saying that now we have got a double burden of disease, but it's not being reflected in in the funding. Now, out of this measly 3%, 41% came from private philanthropies. So I'm talking about the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and other philanthropies like that. And then 41% came from bilateral donors. And out of these bilateral donors, the largest investors was the United Kingdom and the United States, each contributing 8%. However, when you look at these bilateral funding, so the 41% that the UK and the US and others are giving to African governments, NCDs are still under-prioritized. And of course, um, tobacco control funding is part of the NCD funding. And so when you look at how much of this funding goes to, to NCDs, you've got 0.48% from the US and 1.66% from the UK. And so when the bilateral donors are prioritizing, even now out of that 3%, they prioritize prevention. And so we are being urged to adopt tobacco control laws, alcohol control laws, and so on. And um, multilateral actors um, sometimes offer money for um, actually treatment and and, 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 and care, which would then, of course, include cessation. However, even where developing countries have prioritized NCD prevention and control in their development plans, the donors' funding allocations do not align with what the countries have told them are their priorities. So only 3% going into NCDs generally, most of it being targeted at prevention. And even if we say we have got any other priorities, they don't listen to us. So going back to my earlier comments on funding for smoking cessation, we are not being given money for cessation. So if you write a proposal on cessation, you're not going to get funding. Yet what we are finding is that as we increasingly adopt legislation, it's one preventing people from starting to smoke, but also then encouraging those who are smoking to want to quit, yet there is no funding for cessation services. Now to take this further, the 2022 Global Health 50-50 report, which is a report that um, analyzes um, gender equity in uh, global health, uh, came up with some shocking statistics. And so it found that gender and geographic diversity are severely lacking in the boards of major organizations that are active in global health. So it analyzed over over 2,000 board seats across 147 leading global organizations active in global health, and this is what they found. So they found that 44% of board seats are held by U.S. nationals alone, and that nationals of just two countries, the U.S. and the U.K., together occupy over 51% of all board seats. Only 25% of board seats are held by nationals of all low and middle income countries, despite the fact that these countries are home to 84% of the world's population. And obviously the development funding is going to low and middle income countries, but they have got no seat at the table. And then with regard to women, just 17 seats are held by women, from low income countries, equating to less than 1% of board members. So 44% of all the seats are held by men from the US and the UK. So the implication of this is that when these decisions are being made on what to fund and how much to give it, these decisions are not being made by the beneficiaries of those programs. So the low and middle income countries that are supposed to be implementing these programs have got no seat at the table. And so they found a correlation between that measly 3% that is being given to NCDs with the 44% of white males seated at the table who are deciding how much money should be given. And so we are getting a distorted view on what the priorities of the low and middle income countries are, and particularly a failure to understand why NCDs are so important to us And that is why we are not getting the amount of funding that we need because there's that imbalance. Now, the second issue around that, even when you look at which NCDs are prioritized and why, and so when you go back to, I'm sure all of you have heard about the four by four matrix. So when WHO was deciding what are the major NCDs to address and the major risk factors, they came up with four by four. So at the discussions around what diseases should be prioritized, they prioritized cancer, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, including stroke and a chronic respiratory disease. Now, this was based on the disease burden of the West. Mm -hmm. Africa tried to negotiate for uniquely African diseases. And so, for example, sickle cell disease is genetically more predisposed to the Black population. So both in Africa and even, I guess, Black Americans, wherever they can be found, have a higher predisposition towards sickle cell disease. So sickle cell disease is a Black disease. Uh, when you look at something like hemophilia, it also is genetically predisposed towards Africans. And so the Africans tried to negotiate for a broader list so that when the priority was being given, they would be able to address um, their diseases. And we basically got shut out. And so when you're looking at the imbalance, so both at the money table and even at the policy-making table, which diseases get prioritized and mm-hmm. which ones don't? And so, when you're going back, Stephen, to what you said about monkeypox being called a neglected disease, and the question was, "Neglected by who?" And so, that's just how iniquity is showing up in the funding space, and it's what is making it so difficult to get adequate resources to address noncommunicable diseases generally and um, tobacco control in particular. Mm-hmm.
0: It, 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 I, I, I love that you're connecting the, you know, the biggest picture, the, the, the global structures. um, And it sounds like when I say, you know, what if tobacco control-centered equity, you know, for Africa, what that looks like to you um, includes, you know, funding, but also self-determination around the, you know, goals for what that funding should address, you know, how that funding should be spent. Is that accurate? You know, when I say what if tobacco control-centered equity, what's... If there were no barriers, you know, what would that look like to you in in your context?
1: Um, so, number one, um, I think would be how the seat at the table, and so that picture of forty four percent being white male at the decision making table for me it would change, and so we would have more women, we would have more geographical regions represented, and particularly we would have the beneficiaries represented. So, from other elements of NCD, you talk about patient-led advocacy that patients need to be the face of this. For me, I would say that it needs to be the beneficiaries who are the faces of, of all of these places. So, for me, that's what that's what equity would look like.
0: Great, and it, you know, I just to make a little link. It linked Andrew. It sounds like, at least nationally, that's part of what's built into the. Um, 2025 Aotearoa plan is that the beneficiaries are at the, have a seat at the table, have power in negotiation. Is that true?
2: Oh, absolutely. I think it's yeah. I totally agree with what Rachel's been talking about. It's we talk about equity, we talk about unfairness, and it's usually a reflection on who's got a seat at the table. And you know, and and, and our experience has often been that they haven't been, you in, know, in Indigenous. Um, we have had you know underrepresentation from a, a woman and so forth. In fact, if you think about some of the definitions and some of the terms we use, things like um, marginalised group and all that sort of things, we don't define ourselves as marginalised. It's usually defined by groups with power talking about us, but not with us. And so for our story, it's been, um, as I mentioned earlier, it started off in the mid-2000s where our Māori leaders started thinking, well, this wasn't good enough. We need to start changing the discourse and the path here. And we need the only way to address um, inequities around related to tobacco use was a to get rid of tobacco, but also having a lead lead role in and how this plays out, defining what it means to us, defining what health mean, well-being means to us. So it's obviously physical health is really important, but it's intimate links to our experiences of colonisation. So, um, in 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 two thousand and ten, there was a, uh, a, a the government ran a select committee, which is called the Māori Select Committee, that this heard the impacts of uh, tobacco on Māori and as a result they committed around that time to a smoke-free uh, future or smoke-free 2025. It did take a decade for them to get actually to a plan but now we can see it sort of panning out with the plan and a core part of that is representation from Māori Ma- you know, as well as Pacific groups and other groups. So having a seat at the table and making sure it's done with us, not on us.
0: I love that. I mean, we, we started the hour talking a bit about power and Who benefits from the status quo and who has the power for the change? And you've both both brought that in that this component to bringing about equity has to be about giving power to the most impacted groups, um, you know, and and, and seeing representation. I want to before we translate to uh, sort of transition to talking about how we personally or organizations can work with greater equity. I do want to mention or give you the opportunity to talk about e-cigarettes and harm reduction. Um, they have re, you know emerged as a kind of dominant conversation around tobacco control, what to do, what to do next. Um, maybe I'd like to come to each of you, maybe Rachel, you first, you know, what about e-cigarettes and, and harm and the harm reduction argument? How do you see them in the light of this conversation and, and your experiences?
1: Um, so this is one other area where I feel there's um, there's, there's inequity, and again, following that divide of um, the West versus the rest of us. And um, in the run-up to the last conference of the parties uh, that was held um, this year, we had um, some discussions on e-cigarettes. So it's been being discussed, I think, for the last two to three years, with WHO trying to give guidance um, upon the request of the Conference of the Parties to the Parties. So the approach that WHO has taken is the precautionary approach. And so basically saying that um, we don't have enough information on how safe e-cigarettes are. So particularly when e-cigarettes are being marketed as less risky alternatives. Now, they may be less risky. That doesn't translate into they are safe. And I think we've got a growing body of evidence that they are not safe. So um, WHO has taken the precautionary approach and so has come up with four policy options where they are saying, those of you, for example, like Africa, where on some of your markets there are no e-cigarettes or else the the, the prevalence is really low, I think your solution would be to ban them or not to allow them. Um, For others, you need to strictly regulate. So, for example, the way Australia has gone, which is to treat them like medicines so that they have to go through a really stringent and regulatory process. Um, And so... African countries are happy about that because you can imagine a country like Sierra Leone that doesn't even have a Tobacco Control Act yet. So the basic FCTC, they've not started implementing. And then you're trying to tell them that they need to deal with a new product called e-cigarettes. And so there's been a lot of pushback from the West. And in the run-up to the Conference of the Parties, there was a letter that was mailed to all of the delegates, signed by 100 doctors and public health professionals from the West, particularly from those two countries I mentioned, the US and the UK, and really just pushing and saying that the approach that WHO is taking is not right, that we should now be pushing um, e-cigarettes as harm reduction. And the argument was that particularly someone from the UK said, the UK has got the capacity to regulate e-cigarettes. Now, when we all got into the FCTC, we moved by consensus. And typically that is how things proceed at that level. And so some of the things that got written into the FCTC were written to take into account particular realities. So when you look at something like um, Article 17 on alternative livelihoods, this was written in because all countries that had serious numbers of tobacco farmers were saying that unless we deal with tobacco farming, we cannot sell the rest of the FCTC. And so it's probably about 20 countries that have got a serious issue of um, tobacco farmers, but Article 17 was written to take their interests into account. So why is it that now for e-cigarettes, we have got a group of four to 10 Western countries that want to write something that benefits them without thinking about the 170 rest of us who don't have the capacity to regulate? So this is iniquity where 10 rich, high-income countries want to push a line that's going to make life very difficult for the rest of us. And so um, I really wish we would all support WHO. So if you personally in your country have got the capacity to regulate, then regulate at a country level. But let's not push for a global standard that 90% of the parties of the FCTC are not going to be able to implement because they don't have the capacity.
0: Thank you. Very sharp view. Um, Andrew, would you like to talk about, in your context, address um, e-cigarettes and harm reduction?
2: Um, so just a bit of background. So in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and around 2018, there was a court case where uh, I think it was Philip Morris took our government to court around the availability of their products and um, on a technicality, our government lost and the up- upshot was that uh, vaping, um, e-cigarettes became really available. So all through our dairies um, and promotions on TV, all those sorts of things that we saw saw the tobacco industry years ago. Um, since then, there have been some regulations come in place, but the damage has really been, been done. And so I guess from a harmonization point, so I really, really agree with the points that Rachel was making is that the the um the jury's still out on you know the, the amount of you know how much you know safe less harmful they are than cigarettes. Um, for me, it's really also about um protecting our young people. So, for our latest stats in New Zealand, it suggests that Māori youth have, have been really taking up vape. So, it's I think it's around twenty percent daily vape and thirty five percent experimenting or something like that. So. It's really, we're not doing a good job of protecting our young people from vaping from here. And I do think we need to um, think about how we regulate to, and particularly protect young people. It might be, you know, if smokers p- smokers it can't quit. Sure, it might be able to um, be of some benefit. Um, one of the things I particularly object to is the way that very powerful lobbies are pushing the um, harmonisation agenda. As I mentioned earlier, I think that um, it's really a couch within a Western biomedical model. Um, indigenous models are much, often much whole, more holistic, and for us, it's obviously about reducing the harm, but it's also about what addiction means to us as a people, spiritually, the way it's been tied to our colonization, but also thinking about you know what sort of legacy are we going to leave for our young people? It's clearly not, um, it's not, it's appealing to young people perhaps more than it is to you know, current, current smokers. So. You really want to have control of this this course and and be unfettered by these sort of external influences, particularly with um, the tobacco industry really investing in these these devices. Thank you,
0: really insightful. Um, I just wanted to, we're we're in our closing minutes, and I was hoping to spend a little more time on this, um, but but we've had such substantive talk. I, I want to just help leave our you know our audience, our listeners, our public health professionals. They work in you know obesity prevention and data. You know, data for health and tobacco control and um, for us to leave maybe with a few words from you about how can we as, um, you know, public health professionals, as organizations, how can we act with greater equity? You know, I know we can't promote equity within tobacco control without also embracing it more holistically as a movement. How do you think we can act with greater equity? Are there other movements that we should look at that have that have done a better job of putting equity in the center of their goals? Um, maybe Rachel and then Andrew, you can help leave us with some with some takeaways for for how we can take equity forward.:
1: So I think that the best example, particularly for tobacco control, is HIV. And so particularly when you look at um, all the advocacy around um, intellectual property and access to um, the ARVs, um, which was largely led by South Africa and other countries with a very high um, HIV AIDS burden. And that whole idea of putting the patients at the center of it all. And so the patients became the face of that campaign so that we stopped having academic discussions around statistics and were looking at faces of actual people. And I think one of the things that tobacco control needs to learn, because very often when we are at conferences, we've got the doctors, we've got the researchers, we've got people like myself who've never smoked. And I very rarely see the people whose, um, whose larynxes have been um, uh, operated out because they smoked cigarettes, the people whose legs were cut off because they got um, blood clots in their legs. And so just putting the patients and the beneficiaries at the front of it, even among ourselves as a community, I think is the first place um, for us to start.
0: Fantastic, Andrew. What 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 are your insights on this topic?
2: Well, I think for for us, um, where we we're coming to with tobacco control and equity is that the most equitable outcome is is no smoke tobacco use. So examples where we might have eradicated certain you know diseases like in Australia or New Zealand polio and how we came to in the country to do those sorts of things. I think in terms of outcomes, they're you know, putting. Equity and rights is a central outcome. It's a cornerstone of public health. But it should be a cornerstone of our tobacco control programs. And really thinking long and hard about our current tobacco control measures and the values that might be underpinning them. And again, again agreeing with uh, with Rachel, is, is being really clear about whose voices are and should be at the table, has power to make decisions about our future. So engaging with those communities most effective. Thank you both, and I certainly
0: am leaving both more informed and you know inspired to. Um, to partner, to collaborate, to listen, and to ensure that um, the voices of you know, impacted um, people, of, of our, my, my colleagues who are working in the context that, that are having the worst effects are, are at the table. So I want to thank both of you, Rachel Cotonio and Andrew Bois, for your expertise and for this you know, engaging discussion, and also to each of you who are listening. Um, If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to share it, you can look for the Public Health Power Hour podcast on your favorite platform like Apple or Spotify. And we're planning another great episode for June. Um, Make sure to follow at VitalStrat on Twitter or or subscribe to our email newsletter at vitalstrategies.org to listen in live. Um, Thank you all for tuning in. Rachel and Andrew, thanks again. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Public Health Power Hour. We hold these live conversations several times a month on Twitter spaces. Follow us at VitalStrat on Twitter to join the conversation in real time. We'd love to see you there. To learn more about how Vital Strategies is reimagining public health, go to www.VitalStrategies.org. I'm Steve Hamill with Vital Strategies. Join us next time on the Public Health Power Hour.